Luke chapter 19, uh, I, I was looking at the triumphal entry story this week in that, and I, I noticed that the very first phrase in Luke's account tied it back to what he had just said, which is the parable of the 10 minus. And then at the beginning of the parable of the 10 minus, I noticed that it says something that connects it to the story before that, which is the, par- which is the story of Zacchaeus. And so I went, oh man, I gotta, I gotta go for the whole chapter today. <laughs> because that's how Luke wrote it. Luke, Luke has, has given us a very unique uh, uh, picture of the triumphal entry. It starts with Zacchaeus, it goes into this parable, and then it goes to the triumphal entry, and then it goes to Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. And in All of the Gospels tell us about Jesus coming to Jerusalem and the ride on the donkey. It happens in all four Gospels. Only Luke puts it in this context. And I think he does so with a very specific intent and purpose. Uh, Obviously, uh, Luke is the only one who tells us the story of Zacchaeus. And while there is the parable of the talents in Matthew, uh, it comes in a very different place than where Luke tells us the story of the 10 minus, and he also includes some very significant different uh, elements in this parable that make it quite a bit different than the other one. And its placement just before uh, the triumphal entry is also significant. Luke is the only writer of the gospels who tells us that when Jesus approached Jerusalem, he wept over it. None of the others do this. It's only Luke. And so let's hear what Luke has to say to us this morning. I want you to to listen for repetition and and, and listen for a theme that kind of ties the whole thing together. Uh, Listen for how Luke connects this. Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 1. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He's gone in to be the guest of this man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. And he said to them, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. And calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minus and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we don't want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know 
what they had done, how they had gained by doing business. The first before him said, Lord, your mina has made 10 more. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful with very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five mina. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I have kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you because you are a severe man and you take what you did not deposit, you reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit, reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank and, and that at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him, give it to the one who has ten mina. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten mina. I tell you that everyone who has, more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet. And he said to two of his disciples, saying, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say to them, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, <clears throat> why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began driving out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers." And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests, scribes, and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find him. They did not find anything that they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. This is the word of the Lord. So, the key theme that ties it all together, seeking. They were seeking. Zacchaeus was seeking to see Jesus to get to know who he was. Jesus is seeking the lost. 
And those in power in Jerusalem are seeking his destruction. Why do we seek Jesus? The first theme comes in the Zacchaeus story. Seeking to see who Jesus was. I think this this verb of to see, it's to see, to understand, perceive, and then to act in accordance with what you find. Seeking. He is seeking Jesus. The perception of sight goes all the way through this uh, this whole chapter. He wants to see Jesus. Jesus sees him. The Son of Man came to seek the, the, the lost. And near the end, we come back to it. They, they're praising God for everything that they have seen. And Jesus sees the city. And his opponents see him and seek to destroy him. Well, how does this all work together? What's Luke wanting us to, to see? In all of this. Because we have to remember that, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all tell the same story, but they all tell it differently. And Luke has said right from the beginning, Theophilus, I'm writing this account to you of all that Jesus has done so that you may know for certain the the, the truth of the hope that you have embraced in the gospel. And then Luke writes a part two as well. He says, you know, Theophilus, in my former book about Jesus' life and times, I wrote to you all that Jesus began to do and to say, and this is what he's continuing to do and to say. And, and, and the, this whole story, Luke and Acts, really, we need like Luke 1 and 2 Luke. <laughs> and we need to, unfortunately, somebody decided to throw John in between them, and so we kind of separate them in our minds as two different stories, but it's really one story. And there are things that, that Luke is weaving in here, and we're going to see this especially on on Good Friday, how Luke's account of the crucifixion also matches very similarly to an account in the book of Acts. But getting ahead of ourselves. Seeking Jesus. What happens when we seek Jesus? Well, when we find who Jesus is, there are three different responses that we have in this whole passage. One is humble surrender to him. Another one is to worship him for who he is. And the third response is to seek to destroy him. So Zacchaeus is the first one. He is seeking Jesus. Jesus sees Zacchaeus and he sees something different in Zacchaeus. He sees something about his identity that other people miss. And this has happened all the way through Luke's gospel. Jesus says to Simon, a Pharisee he's having dinner with, do you see this woman? He didn't. All he saw was a sinner. If this man were really a prophet, he would know what kind of woman she is. She is a sinner. And Jesus says, do you see this woman? She's done something beautiful for me and it won't be taken from her. All through the gospel, Jesus is seeing people as sons and daughters to be redeemed, not sinners to be written off. And this is happening in the Zacchaeus story as we lead up to the entry. And when they saw it, and Luke doesn't even tell us who they are, 
But if you've read the Gospel of Luke, you know who they are because they grumble, which is the same word used in Exodus for the people when they grumble against God's provision for them. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And what does Jesus see? He sees a son of Abraham. Behold, Lord, half my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anything of everyone, I store it fourfold. What happens when Zacchaeus sees Jesus? Because he wanted to see who Jesus was, and when he does see who Jesus is, it changes his life. Completely. Lord, I give half my goods to the poor. In rabbinic Judaism, 20% was considered extravagant giving. 50% is out of the realm of possibility. But he is so thankful. He says, it doesn't matter. I will give 50% of everything I have, everything I own. And I will restore fourfold anything that I have defrauded. Now, in Leviticus chapter 5 and 16 and, and Numbers 5, 7, if, if you were caught kind of, or, or if you were guilty of uh, financially extorting from people, you were to repay one-fifth, so like 20%. You know, so give it back to them plus 20% kind of interest. He's saying, give it, I'm going to give it back to them plus four times more. So what would that work out to? Let's just use a good round number. I defraud you $100, I should give you $120 back. Zacchaeus is saying, I defrauded you for $100, I'll give you $100 plus $400 more. Zacchaeus is a radically changed man. He is totally seeing money in a different way now. He is seeing that he needs to be a generous person because of the generosity that he has experienced in Jesus Christ. It changes him radically. And here, here is a man who was not just a tax collector. He's the chief tax collector, so think of it as like tax collection in the first century was kind of a great pyramid scheme. <laughs> The chief tax collector had other tax collectors who maybe had some other tax collectors. And each time they collect a tax, they pad it a little bit for their own expenses and for their own profit and their own benefit. And it keeps going on up the ladder. So, so like Zacchaeus is like one of these guys who is really hated by the people. Because this is not just the CRA. This is like a guy that is also in league with Rome against his own people. A, a pagan nation uh, oppressing the people, and Zacchaeus is throwing his lot in with them, which is why Pharisees and the teachers of the law are so ticked off at him, at Jesus, for going and eating with this man. And this has happened throughout the gospel too. This Jesus keeps eating with the wrong people, saving the wrong people, healing the wrong people, going against you know, people that have just sold out our country. But Jesus is there with them constantly. It's a consistent theme throughout Luke. The wrong people receive grace, but the wrong people, in Jesus' eyes, are the ones who are saved. Today, salvation has come to this house. Restoration, salvation here, this word salvation isn't just, 
you know, you'll go to heaven when you die, but it's wholeness, it's completeness, it's restoration of relationship with God in the here and the now, right now. This man is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Now contrast that with what he says at the end of this chapter. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you're about to be shredded and destroyed. Your house left to you desolate because you didn't know God was here. You refused the Messiah when he came. This house is restored. This house will be destroyed. Again, Luke is putting all of this together for us. And then as they heard these things, he proceeds to tell them a parable. Because he was near Jerusalem, because they supposed the kingdom of God was to appear immediately, so Jesus is here doing a theological course correction on their expectations about the Messiah. That's one of the main reasons that he's telling this parable. He's also using some recent memory for them as well. When Herod the Great became uh, Herod the Great, he did go to Rome, he got appointed and all this other stuff because he couldn't do any uh, governance ruling without Rome's approval. But when Herod the Great died, Archelaus went to Rome to be uh, confirmed for kingship over Judah. But a bunch of people from Jerusalem, the scribes and the Pharisees, they got together, a, a Jerusalem delegation went to Rome as well to say, we don't want this man to be king over us. But Archelaus was made king anyway, and he was kind of brutal about it. Um, we don't have a lot of details about that, but Josephus tells us that it was Archelaus and there was a resistance from the Jewish leaders. And so when Luke includes this, Matthew doesn't include this in, in his telling of the, of, the ten, of the talents, but Luke includes this, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we don't want this man to reign over us. And this is what Jesus is now going to experience when he rides into Jerusalem. And so he is kind of giving us a heads up here too. Again, Luke puts this ahead of the, the triumphal entry. The citizens sent a delegation, we don't want this man to be king. But there are servants who are going forward. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this because it's a long passage. But this is what is setting it up. Jesus is in some way managing the messianic expectations that the people were beginning to feel, and especially as they were heading to Passover. Right? In Luke's gospel, this journey starts in chapter 9 and verse 51. Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem at that point. And the rest of the book is the journey to Jerusalem. In, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, Jesus makes one journey to Jerusalem. It's only in John's gospel where we get multiple Passover feasts in Jerusalem, giving us a sense of time for Jesus' ministry. The synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, only have this one journey to Jerusalem, this final time. And in Luke's gospel, he gives us a heads up right in chapter 9 that this is a deliberate journey. And so Luke is here also saying, the journey is now coming to an end, and it's all about the kingdom. And Jesus has been announced the king in the first two chapters, over and over again, in, in, in uh, the song of Zechariah and the song of Mary. 
and in his, his acclamation at the temple when he was just a baby, this child will cause the rising and falling of many. And here he is riding into Jerusalem. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. And is this potentially a connection to the end of the passage where Jesus says, oh, I wish Jerusalem that you would have been open to the fact that I was here. You thought you knew the way of peace, but it's now hidden from you and destruction is coming. And certainly it happened 40 years later. 40 years later, Titus, Roman emperor, surrounded Jerusalem, built siege works up to the walls, tore it down, destroyed it, and killed everybody inside and ripped the temple down. And what Jesus wept for came true. How he wanted to gather them as a hen gathers chicks, but you were not willing, Jesus said in another place. The triumphal entry, Jesus tells this parable and he says, I'm, I'm riding in, you're going to acclaim me as king, but I will be rejected. I will be glorified. The father will take me to his right hand and one day I will come again. So there is also kind of a long-term thing in this parable. And if we just look quickly, briefly at this, we see that in, the, in between, there's a task to be done. There is an investment of our lives to be made for the king. And when he does come again, everyone, faithful or not, will be held to account before him. The triumphal entry. In what sense is this triumphant? Jesus comes riding on a donkey. This has a lot of imagery going on here. Some of it ties back to David and Solomon. After Solomon, they usually rode horses. Donkeys were no longer used that much. So it goes all the way back to that. The laying down of the cloaks and the welcoming and, and the coming down the Mount of Olives and even, the, even the, uh, the palm branches, and John's gospel tells us about the palm branches, all of this harkens back 150 years before Christ to Judas Maccabees who came in claiming to be the redeemer of Israel through military might, overthrew the Seleucid Empire, kicked them out of, of, of Jerusalem, uh, got rid of the... Um, a corrupt uh, priesthood that had been hired basically by this Greek empire uh, within uh, Jerusalem and within the temple, cleansed the temple, had coins minted with the palm branches on it, and basically said, you are now free. And this is why we have Hanukkah, Festival of Lights. 150 years before Jesus, they thought that the Messiah had come in Judas Maccabees the hammer but it came through military might, coercion, and power. 
and Jesus is riding on a donkey and saying, that's not how it's gonna happen. But that's what everybody was expecting in this moment. Nationalistic power. Yes, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord and the Romans are gonna get kicked out and we're gonna be the, we're gonna be the people again and we're gonna tell the Romans what to do and everybody else will have to listen to us again. That's the messianic expectation everybody has in this moment. But they get Jesus. They don't get a king who is coming to kill, they're getting a king who's coming to die. They want a king who will rule through oppression. They get a king who rules through sacrifice. They want a king who will ensure that their power will be able to cancel any other culture. Instead, they get Jesus, who says, tell the gospel to all cultures. The triumphal entry is triumphant because yes, they are welcoming a king. It's sad though because they welcome a king in their own making and in their own minds. When Luke quotes, has, has the people singing from Psalm 118, verse 26, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. He wants us to remember the parable that he just recounted about the king who is going to come as a judge eventually. Because in Psalm 118, it's, it's just blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that's a series of uh, Psalm 113 to 118. If you want to read those this week, this is the Passover hymnal. And so when Jesus and his disciples sing a hymn and go out to the Mount of Olives on the night before Jesus is betrayed, they're singing Psalm 113 to 118, and there's some powerful stuff in there when you think about what Jesus did, especially with uh, the Lord's table. We'll come back to that on Friday. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And then this one, this is unique to Luke. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. What does that remind you of? Again, this is Luke. Peace on earth. Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to, uh, on those on whom his favor rests. Luke has just suddenly tied this all together. From the announcement of Jesus' birth to the arrival in Jerusalem. But it's peace on earth in Luke chapter 2 and peace in heaven. And this is, in, in Hebrew thinking, this is all of creation, everything. Glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd say, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if they're silent, the very stones will cry out. The acclamation of Jesus as king cannot be silenced. And this is the last appearance of the Pharisees in Luke's gospel, and it's kind of open-ended. They don't respond to this. Actually, Luke has Jesus eating three times at different Pharisees' house, and, and, and Jesus seems to be trying to draw them in. They're, they're, and it's open-ended. We never get the response when Jesus challenges 
Simon, and when he tells the story of all the lost things and the lost sons and the older brother who is going, I don't like the fact that, all, that you're so gracious and kind and welcoming people that I don't think you should welcome. He tells the story of the older brother who won't come into the party because he's bitter about God's grace. But there's never the response. And I wonder, because this is Luke writing, and in the book of Acts, we see Pharisees increasingly believing in Jesus and they become allies even of Paul. And Paul himself was a Pharisee. There's some kind of an open-handedness with the Pharisees. This is the last we see of them in Luke's gospel. The crowds acclaim Jesus as a king, but Jesus comes as a very different king and he draws near the city and he weeps over it. This is how we respond to rejection of the gospel, to weep over the rejection. Would you, even you, if you had known this day the things that would make for peace, which is ironic because the name Jerusalem is foundation or possessor of peace. But now it's hidden from you. They couldn't see. Remember that key thread that goes through this whole chapter. Seeking and seeing, but it's hidden. The days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you, surround you, and hem you in on every side. They will tear you down, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. You don't know what will bring you peace, and you don't know that God has visited you. But throughout the gospel, we see that this is not just an ignorance because they don't know. It is willful blindness and ignorance. The disciples had welcomed Jesus as a king because they had seen all of the things that Jesus had done. And throughout Luke's gospel, those leaders, those Pharisees, scribes, and people from Jerusalem are there the whole traveling trip too. They have seen it all and they still don't get it. They are willfully blind to it. And he entered the temple and he drove out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the Greek word here for robbers is for rebels. Those who set up and want to rebel specifically against Rome. And Josephus uses this word for the zealots. You can read conservative religious nationalism in this. They also set this up in what is this, this place where people are buying and selling in the court of the Gentiles. The one place where people who were not Jewish could come to worship and they basically are going, yeah, okay, we've got this court of the Gentiles, but we're going to make it so uncomfortable for you, you won't want to come here anyway. We actually don't want you here. It's fortress mentality that says, if you're not Jewish, you can't come in. If you're not us, then you don't belong. Get out.
He drove them out. This house shall be called a house of prayer. And in the other Gospels, they include the fuller quote, for all nations, for all ethnic groups. But you've made it a den of robbers. You've made it a place of rebellion and resistance. And so the summary of the next week is here in verse 47. He's teaching daily. The chief priests, the scribes, and the principal men, those who are in power in Jerusalem, are seeking to destroy him. But they couldn't find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on their words. See, they feared, what they feared most about Jesus was loss of power, control, and their place in society. And when people fear loss of control, power, and place, they will seek to destroy that which threatens them. And so they seek to destroy Jesus. This chapter started with a man who was considered by them to be an outsider of the worst sort, a man who sold out his country to work for the Romans. And yet he sought Jesus to know Jesus, and when Jesus saw him, he called him a son of Abraham and said, salvation is coming to this house and has come to this house today. When Jesus entered Jerusalem and entered the other house, he said, this house has become a den of insurrection and it's going to be destroyed. And so those who were in power over it sought to destroy him. When we seek the Lord, it is his terms and his identity that we need to respond to. Those who respond to the Lord, to the King, who invest and who are faithful as the faithful servants of the parable, men like Zacchaeus, who live in surrender, humility, and deep life change, experience the salvation of the King. When a delegation of disciples, two of them, walk in faithful obedience and they experience what Jesus says would happen. When the disciples who had seen all of this stuff just praise God in worship for the mighty works that they had seen. And so our response to the Lord, the King, the positive response, the response that, that, that puts us in a place of, of Jesus saying, salvation has come to your house today, is surrender and humility and deep life change, faithful obedience and exuberant worship in his presence. But then there are also those who seek to stop Jesus from being the king. Those who hide what they know out of fear of judgment we go back to the parable, there are those who are servants and yet, they, that, that, yet he hides. Daryl Bach in his commentary says, behind this lack of fruit is a lack of recognition of God's grace. See, he only saw the Lord as somebody who would be angry and disappointed and judgmental. That's how he thought about 
this king. I know you're a hard man. Some of us have a picture of God as just a cosmic killjoy who demands everything from us, and he does. But we see it as a threat to our power and our prosperity. The Pharisees, the chief priests, the scribes, and the principal men of the people, they were the enemies who refused to acknowledge the king. And they will be destroyed. These are people entrenched in tradition and religion and power and privilege who say we will only accept the Messiah on our terms. We are certain that he will enhance our station in life, increase our power over others, and will remove obstacles for our prosperity. That's the Messiah we'll serve, not this guy. And so they seek to destroy him. How we respond to the king is critical. And how we invest our lives with his grace that he has given us determines how we will meet him when he returns. Luke has given us chapter 19 as a connected linear narrative of one day, one day's events. The perception of sight and seeing is repeated. The responses to Jesus are both positive and negative. Luke's narrative framing of the Jerusalem arrival is unique. What does he want us to see and to know and to respond? How does he want us to come to this story? More like Zacchaeus than anything else. Ready to give up all that we have for his kingship and his glory. Matthew 6, 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Lord, we come to this story of that Luke has given us, woven it together with Zacchaeus and with this parable and, and your weeping over Jerusalem because the expectations of the people were so at odds with the reality that you had come. Lord, convict us where we have adopted a faith that seeks power and control and prosperity and influence and self-centered pumping our own tires. We serve a risen Savior, but we also follow a crucified Christ. One who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We follow a king who said, if you really want to follow me, take up your cross every day. Count the cost. If you're going to build a tower, sit down and estimate what it's going to cost before you start building. Don't start following me if you're going to bail it. Because it's going to get hard and it's going to be costly. And 
and it's going to turn your world inside out and upside down, and what you thought was important won't be. And the people you think shouldn't be included in my kingdom are going to be sitting right next to me. The outcasts, the blind, the lame, the lepers, the broken. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to all of them and to heal them and to announce the year of the Lord's favor. Luke chapter 4, when Jesus reads a text from Isaiah, he stops short and he says, I am here to announce the year of favor, not the day of judgment. The Lord that is to come. And today we still live in that in-between space between the fact that you are the risen king seated at the right hand of God and from there you will come to judge the living and the dead. All of us will be accountable before your throne for how we have lived our lives, what we have done with the grace that you have given us. Will we invest it for you and your kingdom or will we try to keep it to ourselves? Father, help us to see that even those who knew their Bibles inside out and backwards, who defended a very conservative view of what the Messiah was to be, who kept the temple going, made sure the worship was done right, were just dead wrong. We need to be open to the fact that you do new things. Your mercies are new every morning. The way you speak to us through your scripture, through prayer, and through our times together, Lord, we need a vision for what it means that you are king. And there is no other king to whom we are beholden in this life except you. Help us to surrender fully to your lordship. In Jesus' name, amen.